Topping the news for August 27, the post office clock is wrong. Commercial men in the city were surprised on Friday morning when they heard the post office clock striking the hour of 10, about eight minutes behind the correct time. There was a hasty comparison of watches and clocks in various establishments. The Deputy Postmaster General subsequently reported steps have been taken to improve the lighting of the dials of the GPO clock. This is now being carried out, and while the work is in progress, interference with the timekeeping of the clock may take place. The public are therefore cautioned not to place too much reliance upon the clock within the next few days. This piece of news from the Advertiser in Adelaide. For August 27, 1910, this was the news. podcast that takes the news from this date many years ago and shares it with you in one news bulletin. I'm Broderick Matthews, bringing you the stories from the era when you got your news in a newspaper and the time from the town hall clock. Welcome once again to This Was The News, this week bringing news from this date in 1910. Now, there weren't too many stories from this date back in 1910, but one thing that was certainly dominating the papers was the news of the Defence Bill. This is how it was reported in the Headland Advocate from Western Australia. Up, boys and atom, says the headline. According to the provisions of the Defence Bill, as explained by the Minister for Defence yesterday, the registration of all youths, except those incapacitated or specially exempted, between the ages of 14 and 17, will begin on January 1, 1911. It will be obligatory to register and severe penalties will be imposed on shirkers. Yes, all those young boys having to register for the defence and you can imagine at 14 to 17 years old, they would all have been of age in a few years' time to be fighting in the First World War. So that defence bill was one story dominating the papers, but the other words that seemed to be jumping about in a few different articles from this day were White Australia. This piece in the MacArthur Minor from Western Australia talks about their White Australia bill in the WA Parliament. Politician Baby Murphy intends to pursue his efforts to put a stop to the nefarious practice of white women marrying Asiatics. And in this connection, it is to be hoped that he will be assisted by his fellow legislators in both Houses of Parliament. Western Australia has enough mixed breeds at present without permitting the continuance of same. And the sooner an act is passed prohibiting such marriages, the better it will be for the policy which we so loudly acclaim, a white Australia. It's wonderful to see in the West Australian paper here the story of white Australia just putting some out-and-out racism in there as well. But this was the news from 1910. Along with racism, the same paper, the MacArthur Minor, also has a bit of fat-shaming too, as we talk about some rather rotund politicians. The air of Bunbury must be good to grow politicians on, judging by the bulk of the two noted members of the profession that hail from there. Sir Newton Moore is fast reaching out after Sir John Forrest's scalp for the heavyweight politician's belt. But there is a distinct difference between the two men. 
Sir Newton can give the Knight of Bunbury a long head and beat him easily in the matter of a hearty laugh, but then Sir John is getting old and crotchety. Moving on to policing news now, and there's always many stories of crime to tell in the papers. This piece on a big seizure of opium comes from the Daily Telegraph in Sydney. A big seizure of opium, amounting to 124 tins, was made yesterday morning on board the NDL liner Koblenz. The vessel was lying at Circular Quay, and at about three o'clock, Customs Officer Small noticed a man moving about in a suspicious manner at the stern of the vessel. The officer went aft, but the man quickly disappeared. The customs officer then made a search and in the moonlight saw a bag attached to one of the mooring lines leading to the wharf. It was just low enough for a boat to take it away and Mr Small lost no time in securing the bag and on being landed it was found to be full of opium. Evidently an arrangement had been made to smuggle the opium in a boat and the vigilance of the officer prevented the introduction of £500 worth of the drug into the Commonwealth. The opium was, of course, confiscated and now lies in the King's Warehouse. And when we say £500 worth of opium, we're talking, of course, of the cash value, which in today's money would be $70,000. So not a bad drug raid. Meanwhile, in other crime news, this piece on the old maid's fright in the advertiser from South Australia. Every evening it is the custom of two old maids who live in a neat little cottage in the east end of the city to spend hour after hour reading, and the tranquillity is only occasionally disturbed by the striking of the clock, potentially a few minutes late at the moment considering the earlier story from Adelaide. Anyway, the article continues. A few nights ago they received a fright from which they have not yet recovered. They thought they heard a noise and had just concluded that a mistake had been made when the figure of a man was seen through the curtain in the dimly lighted passage. Panic-stricken, they ran into the street, right into the arms of a young clerk who is in the military defence forces and who lives next door. He waited for a few seconds and then decided upon action. He loaded his rifle and, walking cautiously into the house, came face to face with the intruder. Hands up, he demanded, and the man obeyed. Encouraged by this success, he issued further orders, and while they were being delivered, the police were hurrying to the spot. Hands down, quick march, was the instruction, and with the rifle pointed at his head, the man was soon marching up and down the passage. The police recognised the man as a lunatic who had escaped from the asylum during the day. And with that swift bit of work from the soldier next door, let's take a short break from the news now and hear these advertisements. For health and well-being, California Syrup of Figs, nature's pleasant laxative. The one remedy that cleanses the system pleasantly and naturally. Acts gently on kidneys, liver and bowels. A delightful liquid laxative and the only true remedy for habitual constipation and the many ills resulting from a weak or sluggish condition. Pleasant to the taste and prompt, gentle and thorough in action. Found at all chemists for one and three.
had a little lamb with fleece as white as snow, but not as white as white rose flower as you and Mary know. One day Mary went to school. She left the lamb behind. They wondered why she broke the rule and thought she was unkind. But Mary brought some buns instead, made from the white rose flower so pure. The children all clapped hands and said, "Well, Mary takes the bun. We're sure." Use only white rose flour, manufactured by Gunning Milling Company. Back to the news now from this date in 1910, and this piece in the Bendigo Advertiser saying no ladies and no gentlemen. Among the instructions given by the Commonwealth Statist in respect to the filling up of the census papers on 3rd April 1911 is this: Persons not following any profession, trade, or calling, and not holding any public office, but possessed of independent means, are to designate themselves as proprietor of land, proprietor of houses, capitalist, annuitant, as the case may be. The term householder is not to be used in place of proprietor of houses, nor the words gentleman or lady in place of no occupation. I do like that idea. If you're unemployed, you don't have an occupation. You just call yourself a gentleman or a lady. Much better than saying you're on job keeper or job seeker. Anyway, the article continues with some special instructions for women now. The occupations of women who are engaged in any other than domestic duties are to be distinctly recorded. Yes, important to note here, folks, that if you are a woman doing anything other than domestic duties, you must put it down,、uh, because that seems quite out of the ordinary. So we have to get it on the census. That same sentence continues on for women and says, "Women are not to be entered as engaged in the occupations of their husbands, fathers, etc., unless they habitually assist them." When only in the capacity of wife, mother, daughter, sister, etc., write domestic duties. Domestic duties for the ladies, but there's no opposite for the men here. Because why would a husband, father, son, or brother be engaged in、uh, domestic duties? Doesn't happen in 1910. Speaking of gendered roles, back in 1910. This piece about hints on letter writing appeared in the ladies' column of the Bunbury Herald in Western Australia. When writing letters, a woman should keep in mind the following rules: business letters must be concise and clear, because business people are supposed to be busy. I think plenty of people now could use that with their own email writing. Anyway, we'll continue with this advice. No letter is complete without the date. In writing to solicit employment of any kind, on no account should personal perplexities or needs be mentioned. The world is full of unfortunate persons, and to a stranger, the troubles of one are no more than those of a host of others. Letters of introduction are left open when written. Elaborately ornamental notepaper and highly perfumed notes are vulgar. I feel like that's kind of like the Comic Sans no-no of the day. Or those people who sign off their emails with that handwriting font in their signature, no, it's vulgar. The article continues and says, when answering letters, remember, the written words stand as everlasting witnesses. An ambiguous sentence is likely to be misinterpreted. 
Friendly words never harm. A written word of sympathy can sometimes do much good. A letter written in a kindly spirit should be answered in the same way, even though the message is disliked. Business letters and invitations must be answered at once. A lady should acknowledge any friendly offer of hospitality, even though it be not by acceptance. So there you are, ladies, some hints on letter writing that uh, you can potentially apply to your emails as well. Finally, this piece, also from the ladies' column, but this one from the Barrier Miner in Broken Hill, talking about perfumed beds. There is nothing very novel, the uninitiated may think, about perfumed beds, for everyone knows how good housewives have, for a generation, prided themselves on their napery, and that one of their special little fads was to place lavender bags among the sheets in order to add a little to the luxury of the sleeper. But when perfume beds are talked of nowadays, something is contemplated which was unknown to the old-time housewife. Now, between the mattress and the sheet, there is laid a scented pad, a thin quilted affair, which has one layer of cotton freely sprinkled with the favourite sachet powder, which causes the whole bed to smell deliciously of roses, violets, or whatever may be the chosen perfume. Pillows are also opened, and sachet powder is sprinkled among the feathers. Oris makes a charming perfume resembling violets, and there are people who like that of the pine, which is easily obtained by gathering the needles from the trees in summer and laying them flat in little sacks, which are inserted in both pads and pillows. So there you go, listeners. If you want a little surprise in the bedroom, why not try a perfumed bed? Let's take a short break now, and we'll be back with sports and entertainment news. The doctor looked sad as he gazed at the lad. His manner was grave and uneasy. His one only chance was a winter in France, or a sea trip as far as Brindisi. The youth, with a wink, replied, Yes, I don't think. He had heard of a cheaper medicament. Wood's great peppermint cure was the thing to be sure, and it pulled him right through his predicament. The price of bread is an important matter to the head of every household, but the quality is even of greater importance, inasmuch as it affects the health of every man, woman and child. The same applies to pastry and confectionery. Though we have not put the prices up, we have risen qualities to the highest point of perfection. We would like an order from you. Also, if you desire perfection in afternoon tea, call at Bartle & Bartle's Acme Bakery, nearly opposite the post office. August 27, 1910 is where all this news is coming from, and we're moving into sports now. This story of football and fighting in Rutherglen was reported in the Argus from Victoria. At the Rutherglen Police Court today, before Mr Bevan, PM, Clyde Burt was charged with having used obscene language at a football match on August 13. Frederick Donkey, the umpire, was charged with having assaulted Burt and Osborne Abbott was charged with having assaulted the umpire. Several witnesses were called for the prosecution and defence. Donkey pleaded guilty to having assaulted Bert, but said it was under provocation, 
Bert having made an insulting remark to him. Mr Bevan, in delivering judgment, stated that it was to be regretted that young men could not play football without fighting. He believed Donkey's story, that Bert had used the words complained of, therefore Bert was the cause of the trouble. Donkey was discharged on his placing ten shillings in the charity box. Bert was fined one pound with thirteen shillings costs for having used obscene language, and Abbott was fined three pound with thirteen shilling costs for having assaulted the umpire. The fines were paid. From that bit of fighting sports news, we're moving on to things that were entertaining the locals, and we've got two stories of touring scientists. The first from the Kadena and Wallaroo Times in South Australia. On Tuesday evening last, under the auspices of the Wallaroo Debating Club at the Waterside Workers' Hall, Mr G. F. Dodwell, Government Astronomer, delivered a lecture on astronomy. There was a good attendance. Mr Dodwell dealt with the subject in its relation to literature, religion and practical affairs. He explained how the standard time is obtained from the stars and finding a ship's position at sea. Some very important stuff being shared here by the government astronomer, a position which I don't think exists anymore. The article continues. The various instruments at the Adelaide Observatory were fully described, as was the visit of the astronomers from all parts of the world to Bruni, Tasmania, to view the total eclipse of the Sun on May 9th, 1910. The Sun, Moon and planets were among other subjects, and one very interesting part of the lecture was that dealing with the seismograph, recording earthquake shocks. The lecture was made very interesting by the aid of lantern views, Yes, the precursor to the PowerPoint slide, the lantern view. The article finishes by saying, On the motion of Dr Wilson, seconded by Mr Ross, a hearty vote of thanks was accorded Mr Dodwell for his interesting and instructive lecture. The second lecture comes from just down the road in Port Pirie, where the Port Pirie Recorder and Northwestern Mail shared this piece on Dr Mawson and his Antarctic exploration. On Thursday evening last, Dr Douglas Mawson of the University of Adelaide addressed a large audience in the Institute on Antarctic exploration. Dr Mawson accompanied Lieutenant Ernest Shackleton in the Nimrod on the latest attempt to reach the South Pole and he, with two companions, were the first to reach the magnetic South Pole. A large number of fine slides were shown by aid of kiosk picture plant. These gave the audience a vivid idea of the kind of country which the little band of explorers had to traverse and the difficulties they underwent, and were made especially interesting by the fact that the man who was explaining them actually took most of the pictures himself. The lecturer came on stage in his full Antarctic dress, but discarded article after article of his clothing. Yes, it's a scientific striptease right here, folks. But as he was discarding the clothing, Mawson was actually explaining the texture and value of each item as he did so, until he had just sufficient of it left to enable him to speak in comfort. As Dr Mawson generally occupies three evenings to deliver the full course of his lectures, he didn't have time in his one evening in Port Pirie to deal at any length with the subject. As each picture was thrown on the screen, he simply made a few remarks in connection with it, but many revelations were made to an Australian audience therein. 
For instance, fancy waking in the morning and finding one's breath formed into ice crystals all over the ceiling. I certainly feel like that some mornings when I wake up here in Canberra, but I can't imagine it's as cold as the Antarctic. This article finishes off by saying, After the lecture, Dr Mawson described to a large number of interested spectators the uses of a number of articles of equipment and scientific instruments used on the expedition. Also, the values of various kind of food and clothing in counteracting the effects of the extreme cold. The lecture was intensely interesting. Sounds like a great TED talk there from Dr Mawson heading through the Antarctic. And with that chilling piece of news, we've come to the end of today's bulletin. For August 27, 1910, this was the news. spoken and edited by Broderick Matthews. All source material is taken from the reference newspapers and found online through the National Library of Australia's Trove website. Links to each of the articles mentioned today can be found in the show notes. The theme music is from Beethoven's Symphony No. 6 and sourced under public domain from newsopen.org. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure to subscribe and review it on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcasting app. This Was The News can be followed on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and any email correspondence should be sent to thiswasthenews at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to today's episode. The next episode will be out in a fortnight, released on Thursday, September 10. I'm Roderick Matthews, and this was The News.